Let me piggyback on to the announcements that Scott made, the first one dealing with IDES International Disaster Emergency Services. When you place a dollar in this offering plate every Sunday, a portion is going to that organization. IDES has a presence, as Scott said, in Ukraine, the neighboring countries that are re uh, receiving refugees. What's kind of different about IDES is they always fund their resources, their relief monies and other resources through the local churches in the area. That's very important. Uh, there was a, a couple of authors that wrote a book a while back called When Helping Hurts. Sometimes in our efforts to do poverty alleviation and other things, we wind up weakening the local church in these other countries because a secular organization will swoop in, an American organization, an NGO, they'll come in with the American money, the American relief, and then they'll leave, and who gets the credit? The Americans. And the local church is diminished in the eyes of the local population. We want to help in such a way that the local church is strengthened, and Christ, through the local church, gets the credit. And that's what is unique about IDES. Their partners are always local churches in these countries. So that's one of the reasons we all support them through offerings there. And if you want to you know, give them a boost, you can go to their website and give directly to that organization as well. And then the other thing, the Discover class. So one of the last couples to actually get baptized and place their membership here at the church, she told me she'd been attending for years and no one ever asked her to join the church. And I realized I was failing in my communication at how we do that here. We do that through the Discover class. We don't have an invitation every Sunday. People come forward, altar calls and that. We have a monthly Discover class, 30-minute presentation. We talk about what we understand the Word of God is the Bible, what we understand about the church, and what we understand about salvation. So those are basics that every person who's considering membership here needs to know what we teach. Make sure you're in alignment with that. So that's how we do it. That's why we, we offer that every month, and that's today, immediately following this service. Uh, if you're considering a home church, that's your next step. Yes, we want you to join this church. I'm inviting you to do that, and that's how it's done. So we'd love to have a bunch of people go on out there, right out the doors to the right. It's the only classroom that's going to be open over there. Esther, come on. Esther, it's okay. What, what is that, Bonnie? Okay, we love Esther. Uh, and so I was going to say, you'll forget about that by the end of the service, but on the way out, you'll see a sign that says, Discover Class this way. So you are invited again, just 30 minutes. Hope you'll participate in that class. This coming Thursday is what day? It is St. Patrick's Day. What do you think of when you think of St. Patrick's Day? Green, leprechauns, hearts, clovers, lucky charms. Let me, uh, who said green beer? Now that does not fly here at Vero Christian Church. The man for whom the day is named was born in Britain in the 4th century A.D. Just before Patrick turned 16 years old, he and his family were vacationing by the sea when they were attacked by Irish pirates. Patrick's family escaped, but he was captured and sold as a slave to a Druid. Patrick might have never become a Christian if he had not been enslaved. In his autobiography, he writes, quote, The Lord opened my senses to my unbelief so that, though late in the day, I might remember my many sins, and accordingly, I might turn to the Lord my God with all my heart. End quote. Through a series of providential circumstances, he was released from slavery. He traveled throughout Ireland and preached the gospel to the Druids. He suffered much. Here's what he writes. 
As every day arrives, I expect either sudden death or deception or being taken back as a slave or some other misfortune. But I fear none of these since I look to the promise of heaven and have flung myself into the hands of the all-powerful God who rules as Lord everywhere. That story is a story of slavery, suffering, and Christianity. It's my segue into the message today because my message today is about slavery, suffering, and Christianity. So our sermon series is Keys of the Kingdom, and today's key is the suffering key. We're going to look at what Peter has to say about our suffering will apply to us, the unjust, unfair suffering in our lives. We'll look at, at it under three headings. Number one, the extreme context of unjust suffering that Peter is addressing is slavery. Very extreme context of unjust suffering is slavery. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Peter writes, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. So I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes on ancient slavery here. It's not Peter's main point. Can't be our main point. Main point has to do with the suffering and how we're to respond to that. But the con- it's a sidebar. The context is slavery. So we need to say at least a little bit about slavery. The slavery that most of us are familiar with, what comes to our minds when we think of slavery is the enslavement of innocent people, right? The, the slave traders going to Africa, kidnapping people, capturing people, bringing them back, and sold, selling them into slavery. That's what we're familiar with. And that kind of slavery is addressed in the Bible, and it is absolutely forbidden. It is forbidden in the law of Moses, and it is forbidden in the New Testament as well. Law of Moses, Exodus 21, 16, the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. That is called man-stealing in the Bible. Man-stealing in order to sell people into slavery is a sin. It is forbidden. And those admonitions would cover most of what we know as modern-day slavery. So, but however, the Bible does not outright ban slavery. It regulates it, other types, other forms, and other contexts. So we just need to be aware there were other types of slavery. For instance, uh, there was types of slavery that would include prison, personal debt, indentured servanthood, and a host of others. Modern-day equivalents might include bankruptcy laws, prison terms, community service hours, and garnished wages, among others. Half the population of Rome, when Peter wrote, were slaves, 50%. Half the population were slaves. Many of those slaves heard the gospel, responded, they became Christians, and they worshiped in the local churches that the New Testament addresses. They worshiped right alongside free people, just like Jews worshipped alongside Gentiles, just like men worshipped alongside women. Paul wrote there in Galatians, there's no more men, women, no more slave-free, there's no more Jew, Gentile, we're all one in Christ. Not that their physical station and circumstances had been changed. They were still slaves, they were still men, they were still women, they were still Greeks. But spiritually speaking, they were all one. They were level on the ground, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So I'm just saying, that existed. I love this as a context for what we're going to be talking about today. That is how we respond to the unfairness and the injustice that comes into our lives because there's no way that we can one-up 
a slave. None of us are literal slaves. I, I sincerely doubt. None of those watching are literal slaves. So there may be some places in the Bible where we might think, well, that's all right what Paul said to them. That's all right what Peter said to them, but that doesn't apply to me because they didn't experience what I've experienced. We can't say that today. But Peter says to these slaves, you know, we have not experienced the injustice and the unfairness to the degree that they have. So what he says to them definitely applies to us today. It's that extreme, this extreme context of slavery. All right, that's number one. The second thing we want to say today about the unjust suffering is the, I call it the are you kidding me attitude of unjust suffering, which is respect and patient endurance. You know what I mean by that? That is what Peter's going to say should be our response to injustice, unfairness, and suffering, we're going to attend, our immediate response is going to be, are you kidding me? Okay, let's look at the verses. 1 Peter 2, 18 and 19. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For God is pleased when... Conscious of His will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. What is our response to do? To be number one, respect. R-E-S-P-C-T. Find out what it means to me. Take care, T-C-B. Respect for who? All right, could be respect for God, could be respect for the master, could be respect for both. The way that the sentence there is constructed, I believe it's showing respect to both, both to God and the master. And also, enduring that suffering with patient endurance. The twist that Peter adds here is this is not just with masters who are every slave's dream master. It's not just for those slaves whose master might treat them fairly, justly, lovingly, as a member of the family. It is also to those slaves who have a master. And this is always going to happen when there is slavery. People are going to be taken advantage of who have a master who is harsh, unjust, unfair. you got the slave who's not being punished because he's doing wrong or he's slacking off. He's actually doing a good job, working hard and all good conscience, and he still gets punished because the master is unfair and unjust. It's that kind of slave of, of suffering. Now, while none of us here has been a literal slave, all of us here have experienced injustice unfairness, and suffering in our lives, all of us. And mark this. Here's another interesting thing about this passage. There are many passages in the Bible that deal with suffering as a result of persecution because you're a Christian. Remember in Acts when the apostles and, and Peter and John, they were flogged and beaten because they were preaching the gospel. That's persecution because you're a Christian. It's actually their Christianity that brought the suffering upon them. They rejoiced. Hallelujah, we got to suffer for the name of Jesus. This is not that. This, 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 these slaves are not suffering because they are Christians. 
It's just the circumstances of their life. They may have been born into it. They didn't do anything to deserve it. It's got nothing to do with Christ as far as what they're experiencing. What's being addressed here is the response in any kind of suffering. And I say we've all experienced it. Maybe a nasty employer, maybe an abusive spouse, it might be a schoolyard bully, it might be a vindictive teacher, it might be someone whose body has been injured because of the recklessness of another person and there's been an accident and your body will never be the same. It might be someone who's experienced premature death of some family member and their heart's broken and they're grief-stricken. You can't undo that. All kinds of ways to experience injustice, unfairness might be someone who was scammed by another person financially. They're put in debt and they'll never recover from that. Things like this that cannot be undone. Now, let me pause for a qualifier here. Let's qualify this for just a minute. I don't think Peter is saying, I'm certainly not saying, that if somebody is in an unequal situation, a power situation where they're being taken advantage of, they're being abused, I'm not saying they have to stay in that situation. If there is a, a realistic and legitimate means to remove oneself from that suffering. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul wrote to slaves. He said, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Some, that happens sometimes. If you can get yourself out of slavery, do that. First, same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's writing there to, to, uh, to people in marriages. And he said, look, you don't have to stay in a marriage. He says, specifically of marriage, we're called to live in peace. I believe if a the Bible, by implication, teaches if a woman is in an abusive relationship, she should extricate herself from that relationship. I don't think the Bible teaches somebody's got to take a beating right, for the Lord if they can legitimately remove themselves from that situation. That's my qualifier. But having said that, that was not the situation for these slaves. The people in slavery in Rome did not have a legitimate means to get themselves out of slavery. They were stuck there. And sometimes we're stuck in situations. Sometimes we may stay in a family dynamic that's less than ideal because there are dependents and who would be harmed if, you know, if we weren't there. Sometimes we're in a financial situation. It's beyond our control. We can't change it. Any number of circumstances would provide a context where we can't get out of the suffering. That's who Peter is writing to. And he says right here, here's how you're to respond. And you can't control it. You can't get out of it. You're just in it. Here's how I want you slaves to respond, and here's how we're to respond. Respect. Keep your respect from God for God and patient endurance. And what that boils down to is we don't allow ourselves in our hearts to become embittered, cynical, misanthropic, hateful toward others. We're going to control the one thing that we can control in the situation, our response. I want to give you an example of this. Now, as I start to describe this person, I'm going to come to a little point shortly into my description of a real person where I'm going to give you a chance to, to say who it is, because some of you might know. They, some knew in the first service. Joseph Merrick is the name. Some of you might know that name, Joseph Merrick. Born in 1862 in Leicester, England. Shortly after birth, uh, Merrick began to experience tumors on his body and deformities all over his body, especially around his mouth, and he could not articulate speech. 
when he was 17, he had to leave home, try to make a living for himself, wound up in a workhouse, a union workhouse in England at that time. That was like slavery for four years. He's kicked out of the, the uh, union workhouse. He contacts the operator of a freak show so that he can be displayed as a freak in the show in order to supply his needs, his living needs. A book was written about him by the surgeon that he encountered during that time. The surgeon was named Frederick Treves, had mercy on him, examined him, and they made friends, but then they parted company. A book was written about him, and then a movie was made about his life, okay? Who am I talking about? The Elephant Man. That's exactly right, The Elephant Man, known as The Elephant Man. And Frederick Treves, the surgeon, wrote this book. Now, so what happened was the show went bankrupt in France, and Joseph Merrick had to make his way back to England. He finally found this surgeon again, and he was allowed to live out his final days in a hospital room in the hospital where Treves worked. But I want you to, I want you to hear this excerpt from the book that he wrote, that I read. A little bit long, but this is directly to our point. So please hang with me in this quote. So Frederick Treves is writing about his experience with Merrick. He writes, here was a man in the heyday of youth who was so vilely deformed that everyone he met confronted him with a look of horror and disgust. He was taken about the country to be exhibited as a monstrosity and an object of loathing. He was shunned like a leper, housed like a wild beast. He got his only view of the world from a people in a showman's cart. He was, moreover, lame. He had but one available arm. He could hardly make his utterances understood. The rest of Merrick's life up to the time that I met him was one dull record of degradation and squalor. He was dragged from town to town, from fair to fair, as if he were a beast in a cage. A dozen times a day, he would have to expose his nakedness and his piteous deformities before a gaping crowd who greeted him with such mutterings as, what a horror, what a beast. He had no childhood. He had had no boyhood. He had never experienced pleasure. He knew nothing of the joy of living nor the fun of things. His sole idea of happiness was to creep into the dark and hide. He had no past to look back upon, no future to look forward to. And at the age of 20, he was a creature without hope. Now, here's the part that I think is interesting and relevant to us today. Those who are interested in the evolution of character might speculate as to the effect of this brutish life upon a sensitive and intelligent man. It would be reasonable to surmise that he would become a spiteful and malignant misanthrope, swollen with venom and filled with hatred for his fellow men, or, on the other hand, that he would degenerate into a despairing melancholic on the verge of idiocy. Merrick, however, was no such being. He had passed through the fire and had come out unscathed. His troubles had ennobled him. He showed himself to be a gentle, affectionate, and lovable creature, amiable and free from any trace of cynicism or resentment, without a grievance and without an unkind word for anyone. I've never heard him complain. I've never heard him deplore his ruined life or resent the treatment he'd received at the hands of callous keepers. His journey through life had been along a Via Della Rosa, the road had been uphill all the way, and now, when the night was at its blackest and the way most steep, he had suddenly found himself, as it were, in a friendly inn, bright with light, warm with welcome. His gratitude to those about him was pathetic in its sincerity and eloquent in the childlike simplicity from which it was expressed. He had learned to read and had become a most voracious reader. 
His range of books was limited, but the Bible and the prayer book he knew intimately. Joseph Merrick was a devoted Christian who suffered unjustly and unfairly in ways we can hardly imagine. But he did what Peter is recommending. He suffered with respect and patient endurance and refused to allow that suffering to deform his soul, his heart, his spirit. Viktor Frankl, Nazi concentration camp survivor, is best known for this statement. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. Sometimes that's all we can do. We can't get out from under it. We can only choose our response and our attitude. This is what Peter is driving at. Because of our inspiring example. And that's our third heading here. The inspiring example of unjust suffering is Christ. Peter leads us now to Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 For God called you and me. God called us to do good even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, He is your example. And you must follow in His steps, literally in His footprints. In 1896, there was a preacher named Charles Sheldon. And back then they had morning and evening services. Everybody was supposed to come back at night for church. That's never worked out great. You about to get about a quarter of the people back. So Charles Sheldon was trying to figure out ways to boost his Sunday night attendance. And what he decided to do was to start writing a story. And he would read a chapter from the story every Sunday night. And so he began writing this story about a man who was poor, down on his luck, came to the home of a preacher while he's preparing his sermon, asking for some help. Preacher kind of brushes him off. And the next Sunday, the same man shows up at the preacher's church in the middle of the sermon, marches down the middle aisle, turns around and addresses the congregation, talks a little bit about making his way throughout the town and people turning him away. And then he collapses dramatically in front of the church. And a couple days later, he died. And Sheldon writes about how this impacted the preacher and then how it impacted different people in that town. Chapter, a chapter a week on Sunday nights. He was soon preaching to packed crowds. When he was done with the story, it was published as a book. The book has sold 50 million copies. I read it as a teenager. It impacted me. Very powerful. Holds up very well. The subtitle of the book is What Would Jesus Do? This is what started that whole thing about what would Jesus do? Anybody happen to know the name of this book? It's called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. In His Steps. We're to walk in the steps of Jesus. We ask, what would Jesus do? But that's not really a general admonition. There are many things that Jesus did that we cannot do because we're not Jesus. When Peter says here that Christ left us an example so that we could walk in his footprints and follow in his steps, he's talking about something very specific. He's talking about the way Jesus reacted, the way Jesus responded to the unfairness and the injustice and the suffering in his life. Now, the suffering in Jesus' life 
was him doing the will of God and going to the cross. But the way that worked out was various mean and cruel people inflicting pain upon him. And he's our example in how to respond. And Peter tells us how to respond in verse 23. Christ did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. We're to do the same thing. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Do, don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Never pay back evil for evil. Romans 12, 19, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. That's counterintuitive. Bob Russell in a column recently tells about a woman who wrote into him. She says she was in the McDonald's drive-thru lane and she was looking at the menu board there and it was taking a little longer than usual to order because she had somebody else in the car and she had to look at the menu. It was unfamiliar and the person behind her did this. Uh, so she finished her order and when she got up to the pay window, she uh, paid for her order and she also paid for the woman behind her who had honked the horn. So I'm paying for her meal too. And so now she's, she's in line to get up to the window where they give you the food. And the woman behind her, the cashier, must have told her what happened because the woman behind her mouthed the words, I'm sorry, thank you, feeling guilty. So when the woman gets up to the window, she shows the lady the two receipts for her food and the, the food for the lady behind her. The, la the lady gives her both bags of food and she drove away. Now oh, the lady behind her had to get back in line and go through the whole process again. And she says, the moral of the story is, don't honk at senior citizens. It doesn't work out well. And she says, P.S., I've been looking at four different Bible versions to find a verse that says what I did was acceptable. I haven't found them yet. I'm sure they're in there somewhere. Bob Russell says, we like that. that. That appeals to our carnal nature. Instinctively, we want to get back. We want to make them pay. She honked at me. But when it comes to vengeance, we're no good at that. We will mess it up every time. We are in no position to judge other people, to get revenge on other people. Only God, only God can serve in that role. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And although it's counterintuitive for us, this is what we've been called to. This is what we've been called for, to follow in Jesus' steps. I want to close with a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, If you are going to be used by God, He will take you through a number of experiences that are not meant for you personally at all. They are designed to make you useful in His hands and to enable you to understand what takes place in the lives of others. God's way is always the way of suffering, the long way home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, everyone here has traveled to Via Della Rosa. We've all walked along a way, a road of suffering. It's a long road. Some are in the middle of it right now. We pray, God, for the strength and the courage to walk in the steps of Jesus, to keep our respect for you, to keep our respect for others, to patiently endure with a Christ-like heart so that our soul, our heart, is not deformed, much less those of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.